we are not separate from the biological world. We are a part of it. We are a product of it. Our cultural diversity is fundamentally an expression of our biodiversity. It is the natural state of humanity because we're an incredibly adaptable and inquisitive species that has found its way to every corner of the planet. I guess as this is the first published episode, I should make somewhat of an introduction. I'm an ecology and conservation biology student, and I'm fascinated by all aspects of the natural world. This episode also marks the start of the 7,000 Voices project. It is estimated that there are around 7,000 languages spoken across the world today, each a unique voice of wisdom of diverse cultures and environments. Yet half of these could be gone by the end of this century. I have always been fascinated by languages and the intricate histories and cultures that have shaped them. I feel that we as English speakers have the responsibility to not just bulldoze out minority languages for our convenience, but instead engage with multilingualism and safeguard each language and its knowledge. A couple of days ago, I had the pleasure of speaking to Daniel Bogre Udell, founder of Wikidungs, as well as dedicating his work to preserving global linguistic diversity He's an absolute font of knowledge about all things languages, even how bees have different hive dialects. But importantly, he highlights the intrinsic link between linguistic diversity and biodiversity. And with that, I hope you enjoy. This is Hidden Ecologies. Me llamo Daniel Bogriudei, Dick Daniel Bogriudei. Mi nombre es Daniel Bogriudei. Um, Shmi, Daniel, Yiddish, Ich bin Daniel. So I've just introduced myself in Spanish, Catalan, and Portuguese, which are the languages that I speak either fluently or conversationally. And then I also introduced myself in Hebrew and Yiddish, which are uh, ancestral languages that I'm learning, but definitely not conversational. And <laughs> That's incredible. That's awesome to hear. So could you just give me a bit of background as to how you've come to speak so many languages? Sure. When I was 16, I had an opportunity to live abroad in Spain, and I lived there for the better part of two years, first in Saragossa, and then when I was a little older, uh, when I was 18, in Barcelona. So Saragossa was the place where I became multilingual. I learned to speak Spanish and I started learning Catalan, uh, which is a language from Spain, France, Andorra, and a little pocket of Sardinia in Italy. But Catalan isn't actually from Saragossa. I just happened to have a teacher who spoke it and I was interested in it after I took a weekend in Barcelona. And then I went to live in Barcelona when I was 18 and, and that's when I became fluent in Catalan. Spanish and Catalan are both Romance languages. When I got back to the U.S. throughout my university years, I um, had some friends from Brazil, and I wanted to learn Portuguese. And if you already know Spanish and Catalan, Portuguese is a pretty close cousin, and uh, you already know about 60%. And so I decided to learn Portuguese. And I learned kind of with my Brazilian friends here in New York and with some pen pals whom I met online. And those are the languages that I am confident in speaking. Um, I have some knowledge of Polish because when I was doing my uh, master's degree, I did a summer semester in Wrocław, 
but I only have some knowledge because most of the classes during that summer semester were in English and it was a very crammed summer. So I actually didn't have a lot of time to interact immersively in Polish. So my knowledge is kind of limited to small talk. And yeah, uh, over the past couple of years, I've been engaging with Hebrew and to a much lesser extent, Yiddish. Yiddish is an ancestral language of mine. My uh, grandparents on my father's side spoke it. And he, my father spoke a lot of Yiddish to me when I was a kid. He wasn't, he isn't fluent, but he retained a lot of post-vernacular Yiddish uh, kind of lexicon of stray phrases and concepts that he kind of passed on to me. And uh, yeah, I, I, and I suppose because of Spanish and Portuguese and Catalan, I stumbled my way through conversations in French and Galician and Italian and, and other Romance languages because that's how Romance languages work. <laughs> this sounds, yeah, very familiar to me. I've stumbled through a few um, conversations in sort of Spanish and Romanian due to Italian and French. So, yeah, uh-huh. Romance languages are a wide-ranging family. But I'm interested, actually, in Barcelona, most of the most of the residents who've lived in Barcelona and been brought up there, is there a big preference for Catalan to be spoken? I think you'll find a more rigid preference for Catalan to be spoken outside Barcelona. The vast majority of Catalan speakers are either natively or fluently bilingual, mostly in Spanish, to a lesser extent, uh, French, a lot of Catalan speakers also know English. And what you'll find throughout Catalonia and the other Catalan speaking regions is a kind of mutually passive multilingualism or mutually passive bilingualism in which people will use both languages pretty fluidly and interchangeably in a same conversation. So let's say at my family, at home, we spoke Catalan. And in your family, you spoke Spanish at home. We might have a conversation where I speak in Catalan and you speak in Spanish at the same time. And because we both speak, we both understand the other language. So we just choose to speak what we're most comfortable in, but we understand what the other person is most comfortable in. And that phenomenon is most pronounced in Barcelona. So in friend groups of people who all grew up there, you'll hear them changing between both languages pretty regularly. I think among people who are born and raised in Barcelona, the percentage of native Catalan speakers is obviously much higher than (laughs) than people who weren't. So it's true for the percentage of fluent Catalan speakers. Um, I think when I lived there, it was 2009, it was still kind of an oddity for someone who didn't, wasn't from Barcelona to arrive and really, really make an effort to learn. I think that's changed and, and more can frequently now you, you'll see people from other parts of Spain or, or from outside Spain moving to Barcelona and learning Catalan too. So I, is there a stronger preference? I guess it really depends on who you're speaking to, but What is absolutely true is that if you move to Barcelona, you can pretty much live a life exclusively in Spanish. And that might lend itself to the impression that Catalan is not as widely spoken as it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is pretty widely spoken by or at least understood by a majority of a, a pretty big majority of people who live there. I think what happens a lot is Catalan speakers are used to switching to Spanish or English. And so people will almost instinctively sometimes switch out of Catalan if they get a sense that you're not from Barcelona. 
if you reply saying, no, I'm really trying to learn Catalan, then they'll go, oh, wow, you know, I didn't even realize I was, uh, I, I didn't even realize I had switched to Spanish, you know, it was like a subconscious thing. And that was definitely a threshold for me when I was learning Catalan. In the early phases, I had to constantly remind people that, you know, I, I actually was living there <laughs> and interested in learning. And then as I got more com comfortable speaking and better at speaking, uh, people would actually hear that I was speaking Catalan and respond to me in Catalan. So I guess that's the flip side of the mutually passive multilingualism. That happens when everyone in the group knows that everyone is fluent or at least understands both languages, but there's definitely an instinctive code switching to Spanish or English if they get a sense that you're not, uh, if you're from out of town, basically. Mm -hmm. And do you think with minority languages nowadays, there's this mutually passive understanding between two groups? If one language is more dominant economically and politically than the, uh, the, gr the group of people who speak the other language, they're more likely to just drop their language and begin picking up the other one? Yeah, uh, this is kind of one of the ways that languages become marginalized and, and, and are pushed out of the public sphere. You know, I think healthy, mutually passive multilingualism is a really cool thing. And it's probably the, the historically sociolinguistic norm, right? Because total monolingualism, where you only speak and understand one language, is actually a fairly modern phenomenon of the past couple hundred years with this linguistic standardization of, of public education and, and stuff like that. So mutually passive multilingualism on the face of it doesn't necessarily need to be the, the reason that a language gets pushed out of the public sphere. Um, and in fact, it, 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 you know, it, it can actually be a really healthy and a really, really normal thing. But when you have a, an instance in which you have the presence of a dominant lingua franca and a minority language or a regional language or a minoritized language or underrepresented language, whatever you want to call it, the expectation that the speakers of the non-dominant language should switch to the dominant language as a convenience to everybody else is the kind of like one of the first things that pushes a language out of the public sphere. And you'll, you'll see in places where a successful language revitalization has been mounted, right? Like in Catalonia, um, or the Catalan-speaking regions of Spain and France, or you know, perhaps in Wales and the UK, you'll you'll see speakers of the non-dominant language insisting on not switching to English or Spanish or whatever the dominant language is, and that gets kind of recast as a sort of reactionary or xenophobic thing. And it's not really that; it's more about insisting that that language can be used in the public space because it, eventually what happens right if if the default is i always have to switch out of this language eventually we'll never speak this language in public and then it becomes a home language and then the next generation is less likely to learn it and so on and i think just touching on this um you know still this theme of mutual intelligibility i think it's actually super cool that people can understand other languages that they supposedly don't speak. Because one of the reasons why monolingual people don't start learning another language is purely for the time expense that they think it takes. But actually, mm -hmm. I think it's super cool if you can just sit down and watch like a film or even read a book in an, a related language and you're still helping the continuation of that language whilst actually not even having to do anything. So it's kind of easier than people think. Absolutely. And this actually happens a lot. 
there's this phenomenon in linguistics or sociolinguistics of what they call silent speakers. Mm -hmm. And these are people who grew up in a community that has its own language. Maybe they were never really taught how to speak it, but like their grandparents or elders in their community spoke it to them. So they understand the language, right? Even though they think they don't speak it, what they find is that they learn to speak it really, really quickly if they try. Because in understanding the language, it's all in their head. Um, like the words are there, the concepts are there, the structures are there. And, and so that, that, that term has been coined to describe that. And, you know, indeed, going back to the, the Barcelona example, because this is the, the one that I'm most intimately familiar with, it's absolutely true that it's much easier to learn to understand Catalan than to learn to speak it. But if the Catalan speaker can speak to you in Catalan and you can respond in Spanish, then Catalan isn't being pushed out of the public sphere. And like one thing that happens that's, I think, really interesting is you'll hear from tourists from other parts of Spain uh, get really upset because they went to Barcelona and they spoke to someone in, in Spanish and that person had the nerve to respond in Catalan, right? And they immediately interpret that as some sort of like, xenophobic, passive-aggressive, linguistic imposition. And it's not that. It's, it's actually just kind of the normal environment in Barcelona mm -hmm. um, that they're not familiar with because they're coming from, you know, a part of Spain that might not have two languages and where, you know, kind of enforced monolingualism yeah. is the norm, right? Right. Um, in the same way a lot of British and North American people only know English. Sure. And I guess through keeping Catalan, and it's the same with other minority languages, through keeping them alive, we also keep alive the huge amount of knowledge that has developed through the evolution of these languages in their environment. Absolutely. Because a language is not a, uh, an abstract phenomenon. It's the concrete expression of a cultural identity and all of the experiences that are associated with that cultural identity and all the knowledge that is associated with that cultural identity. The vast majority of concepts do not have a word in every language, which functionally means that most languages have vocabularies composed of unique ideas that are unique to that culture or unique to a group of cultures. And these are the kinds of things that we safeguard when we keep languages alive. I completely agree with that because my boyfriend's Estonian and I've been attempting to to learn Estonian and there have been so many times where I've said hey how do you say this in Estonian and he's like oh well you know you can't actually translate that but we have a saying which means this and it's just you you can tell that phrase which is maybe the equivalent but not a direct translation has evolved in a whole different temporal and cultural and spatial scenario and so what I'm myself, I'm particularly interested in is the link between linguistic diversity and biodiversity conservation, because mm -hmm. I think there's not enough talk at the moment. Every, everyone knows about the biodiversity crisis, but what's not being talked about as much is the loss of culture and the loss of languages that is kind of arm in arm in this. Yeah. Do you think that linguistic diversity loss is multiplying biodiversity loss? Uh, it's certainly demonstrated to be the case, and that is for two reasons. The first is that when a language falls dormant, uh, what has happened is effectively a cultural community has collapsed. About 
of the world's most biodiverse regions are traditionally indigenous territory. The term indigenous is a complicated one, so we could spin in circles talking about what exactly that means. But what is absolutely true is that the cultures that fall under that umbrella have unique languages, have unique bodies of knowledge about how to best manage the ecosystems that they emerged in and that they have called home for centuries or in some cases millennia. And so when that community collapses, their ability to care for their slice of the planet also collapses, right? And so when we lose a culture, <laughs> we're effectively losing stewards of different parts of, of, of our environment, right? And, and the forces that lead to the collapse of these communities are often the same forces that lead to the collapse of their ecosystems. Deforestation in the Amazon, illegal deforestation in the Amazon, mind you, uh, obviously leads to the destruction and devastation of nature. It also infringes upon the traditional land rights of Amazonian people, right? So it's a kind of a compound catastrophe. And on the flip side of that, language revitalization uh, has often has been found to improve conservation and land management because language revitalization doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It is the restoration of a community's uh, knowledge system or body of knowledge about their environment. It's uh, also the restoration of their cultural sovereignty, which also comes with land rights and things like that. There was one example that I think about a lot in New Zealand, um, knowledge that came out of the revitalization of the Maori language uh, improved the management of soil in New Zealand. Which is obviously uh, a founding ecological factor for any environment. Exactly. For, you know, humanless environments and very agricultural human ones, too, because you can't farm in bad soil. Right. So these are the kinds of things that um, are all really, really intertwined. And going back to the point about the majority of languages or the majority of vocabulary in every language being unique to that language or to a group of languages encoded in those vocabularies are often knowledge about plant and animal species. Right. And so there's a whole field and a whole interdisciplinary field where linguists and biologists collaborate uh, with local knowledge keepers to fast track the classification and conservation of uh, species of plants and animals based on the knowledge of those species that exists in the vocabulary of the languages of the local knowledge keepers. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, so all this stuff is really intertwined. Metaphorically, you know, I, I, I might zoom out. Uh, and take a moment to observe that humans are animals, right? We are not separate from the biological world. We are a part of it. We are a product of it. Our cultural diversity is fundamentally an expression of our biodiversity. It is the natural state of humanity because we're an incredibly adaptable and inquisitive species that has found its way to every corner of the planet. Right. And so our diversity is a part of biodiversity. And if we acknowledge that the diversity of species is important for a stable planet, it stands to reason that diversity within species is also important to the stability of the planet.
And with that, I was so bowled over by the power of Daniel's words because I'd never heard anyone link up linguistic diversity and biodiversity so succinctly. I really struggled to say anything coherent for the next couple of minutes. So I had to re-record the next question to make the conversation make sense. So something I often think about is if we think about the founding principles that govern modern day science, be it physics, biology, chemistry, what have you, how different would they be if the original theorists spoke and thought in a different language? Take Newton, for example. He was writing and communicating every day in English. How different would our knowledge of physics today be if his brain worked in another mother tongue? That is a very good question uh, that I don't have a very strong opinion about, right? Like that's the specific hypothesis that your language uh, directly impacts your worldview. Yeah. And the sort of the scientific theories we come up with. Right. And the way we understand the world, right? It was, that was the whole uh, science fiction idea in that movie Arrival. (laughs) Oh, well, so I was listening to this interview. Um, with the anthropologist Dan Everett. And he'd spent a lot of time um, with an Amazonian tribe. Basically, the way they categorized the, the creatures around them was through their behavior, whereas us Western scientists, we categorize animals through their phylogeny. That, to me, was kind of really interesting, and I wasn't sure how much that was as an impact of the way language shapes our brains, or that just happened to be like a different way of biology evolving in different cultures? Mm -hmm. Well, it's kind of a question of the chicken or the egg, right? Like, is that culture's taxonomical approach to biology the result of their language being different? Or is their language the way it is the result of how they think about things and how they, you know, bring order to the understanding the world, right? Mm -hmm. It's probably both. Because, you know, our languages are how we wrap our heads around our sentience and, and our understanding of the world. And so they're on at, at, at once expressions of our understanding of the world that also then go and continue to shape our expressions of the world as they develop. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's something that's so easily measurable. I know they've done some studies on trying to uh, understand how much your mother tongue impacts how you think about things. And they have found some evidence that, uh, like, depending on what your mother tongue is, you interpret data visualizations a little differently. Oh, really? Um, oh. Yeah. But that's kind of a very minor mm-hmm. Results, right? Like they haven't found anything especially groundbreaking. Um, but I think the thing to keep in mind is that what has been very clearly demonstrated is that the more languages you know, the better you are at learning. Mm-hmm. Um, like there have been a, a ample studies that have demonstrated that multilingualism leads to more open mindedness, it improves empathy, it improves your ability to do math for some reason. Um, and that's because different languages are kind of maps of the human mind. Mm-hmm. And the, the more that exist, the richer our kind of collective thinking capacity as the species is enriched, right? Um, it's funny you brought up Newton. He was writing in a variety of English from, you know, his corner of England in the 1500s, uh, or was it 1600s? I'm going to have to, I'll, I'll Google that one, but around about that time. <laughs> According to Wikipedia, Isaac Newton is widely recognized as one of the greatest mathematicians and physicists of all time. 
born 4th of January 1643 and died 31st of March 1727. Yeah, whenever, you know, he was in dialogue with people who were writing in other languages, right? Like there was no physics without kind of mathematical works that were written in Arabic in the early medieval late antiquity period. Um, and, and those, you know, Arabic writing and speaking mathematicians couldn't have done any of their stuff without what was with what without what had already been done in India, different languages, <laughs> right? So like modern day mathematics is the result of a transmission of all this information through the filter of different languages and cultures. Right. But there are some things that are objectively true. It, it's just our ability to understand them is limited, right? So like the concept of zero was arrived at by Mayan mathematicians in the classical Mayan period and by mathematicians in the Islamic caliphate without dialogue between one another, right? Because those were two civilizations that had, but they still arrived at this concept of zero. Like zero exists in some way, or at least the concept of it is something that humans seem intuitively able to arrive at. But at the end of the day, yeah, all of these physics is the uh, the product of multilingual body of work that has spanned vast geographies and, and centuries, millennia, right? Because and that got to think of the ancient Greek thinkers that were also a part of that. You know, the talking about India, the the uh, Caliphate, the England in the 1500s, right? Like these were all very different places, different languages, and they were all contributing to the same body of knowledge that we have now. One of the main questions I was going to ask you was, what's the importance of linguistic diversity? But you've just blown that out the water um, over the past 30 minutes. <laughs> so I guess that takes us neatly onto your creation of Wikitongues. Could you speak a little bit about how that came into being? Like what sparked the idea? Well, I think there were moments throughout my like early childhood that subconsciously embedded the importance of language, but it definitely emerged into sharp relief while I was living in, in Catalonia, right? This was a place that had mounted a very successful language revitalization. Now, there are Catalan people who would disagree with the extent to which uh, the revitalization has been successful. But, you know, I think when you look at numbers like the fluency rates of younger generations versus older ones, the existence of profitable and expansive Catalan language media industries now, and, and compare that to, to where it was at the end of the Franco dictatorship, during which time it was persecuted for 50 years. I think there's been improvement and pretty remarkable improvement at that. So um, that's what I mean when I say it's successfully revitalized. Not that it isn't, not that its future can be taken for granted, but that it is a language that has grown in the past few decades, not one that has receded. You know, living in this space where a language had been reclaimed and seeing Catalan activists in dialogue with other language activists across the EU, from Greenlandic or Kalalisut speakers to Cornish speakers in the UK to Occitan people in France, the kind of power of language revitalization as a force for social justice the fortification of our identities, our knowledge, right? The generational bridge to ancestors uh, was really, really uh, exciting. And I think it got me thinking about my own languages, like Yiddish, a little more clearly. But back in the U.S., I wanted to get involved. I really wasn't sure how. I wasn't studying linguistics. I actually was studying design and history. And so I started an oral history project where I was just recording people speaking their languages and posting it on YouTube and encouraging people to send me videos from wherever they were in the world. 
it kind of spiraled from there. So we became a nonprofit in 2016, and our original mandate was really to support grassroots language documentation, or perhaps more conservatively, to inspire it, to get people excited about recording their languages and uh, safeguarding their community's knowledge. And as we grew, uh, we started getting requests for support for revitalizing languages, right? Because people around the world are kind of asking this question, how do I save my language and really save it, not just save it for an archive. So it can be a recording, but how do I keep it alive in my community? And so in 2020, we teamed up with the Living Tongues Institute for Endangered Languages, which is another uh, language diversity nonprofit and one of the oldest ones in the space, if I'm not mistaken. And we put together a framework for starting a language revitalization project, which is evaluating what your language needs, developing a measurable plan to implement those needs. In 2021, which I guess was last year, it's with COVID and everything, the past couple of years have all blurred together. But in 2021, we um, gave some grants and in-kind technical support to a, a, a handful of people on the cusp of launching revitalization projects in their communities. Um, there was Wendy Goodlow, who is an Afro-Seminole Creole speaker or learner. Uh, from Texas here in the U.S. The Black Seminole community is from Texas and Mexico. And Creole's based uh, French, is that right? Or uh, it's, a, it's an English-based Creole. Oh, okay, English-based. Okay, cool. Um, but it's a, it's a kind of transatlantic language because it draws from West African languages like Mende and Vai. It draws from indigenous Muscogean languages like Miccosukee and Creek. It, it draws from Spanish. Its closest cousin is the Gullah, Geechee mm-hmm. language, which is also an English Caribbean Creole spoken in South Carolina and Georgia, also in the United States. So that was one project, Afro-Seminole Creole or ASC as they write it for shorthand, is pretty critically endangered. There's only a few dozen speakers and few linguistic materials. So Wendy's goal for this year was to seed a community of adult learners. And she has done that successfully, which is really, really exciting. And so the goal will have to shift now. The question is going to be whether it's about growing that community or really, really intensifying the work of the existing community, right? Like, is it about making sure this small group of people becomes fluent or is it about growing that, you know, eventually one day, maybe the, the goal will be ensuring that there are new native speakers as some of the adults who have become fluent have kids of their own and uh, raise them in ASC. There was another project in the DRC in Congo. This teacher named Hanki Bulebe, who runs an immersion school for the Hunde, Kihunde language, wanted to kind of scale his operation. And Kihunde isn't as endangered as ASC. It's a kind of a, his problem was a little different, right? It's more about how do we scale the teaching of children so that so the current generation doesn't become the first one not to learn it. So he has been developing a lot of really rigorous language materials. Uh, he launched a uh, mother tongue institute kind of equivalent to like the royal academy of the spanish language or something like that where they standardize educational materials train teachers that kind of thing and we could open up a whole can of worms about the problems with standardization uh, it's mm-hmm. kind of like a, a necessary evil in language revitalization <laughs> i open it up a little bit because it sounds well it's well, it's effectively that standardization inevitably kind of erodes some of the linguistic diversity within the language, right? And so right. it can be a threat to dialectal varieties of the language, but it's very, very hard to have any kind of organized and measurable 
revitalization without it, because how are you going to teach children if we're not clear on what the standardized register is? Like, what what's the standardized grammar? Right. And everything has to be written down. Not necessarily. Okay. Um, but it does need to be standardized because a traditionally oral language uh, can stay oral in the age of voice notes and things like that. And the increased compression of video. We haven't been involved with this revitalization project, but the Ashir language in Paraguay, um, I know someone who is part of it, and they haven't taken to writing the language. They continue to write in Spanish and use Ashir orally, but because of voice notes on WhatsApp and things like that, that can still be like a mediatic and standardized thing. So it doesn't necessarily need to be written, but writing is certainly helpful. In the case of Kihunde, there was no controversy in the community. Everyone wanted to standardize a writing system. There is no debate about that. But some communities, you know, th there is a debate about whether we should write it or not. So these were some of the projects that we worked on over the past year. And uh, we have now scaled that program and opened it up. So the goal over the next three years is to support at least 75 new revitalization projects. So anyone can apply once a year for a grant and a year of training and in-kind support as they get a language revitalization project off the ground or help an existing revitalization project go to the next level. It's funny, actually, our applications for this year, the first round just closed last night. So I've been reading through the applications today before our call. And so, so this year, we're going to support 15 projects. Next year, uh, 25 projects and, and 35 projects the year after that. And then hopefully we'll have more funding and can continue to do this stuff because half the world's languages are endangered and 1,500 are critically endangered. There's an urgent need for seed support for new revitalization projects. But on a global scale, there really is no infrastructure for this. So we're trying to demonstrate that this is doable because ideally we'd like to be able to give resources and training to anyone in the world who wants to start a revitalization project. And it's amazing to hear the international response that you got from just posting a few videos off YouTube, because yeah. <laughs> it's hard for us, um, well, I speak as myself, as a native English speaker, mm -hmm. to actually imagine you being, yourself being one of the last few remaining speakers of your language on the planet. If you are that person, I, I can't imagine the amount of sort of psychological toll that takes on you. But if you are that person, you're going to want to take any opportunity you can to keep your language going. It's incredible to hear that you are starting a global infrastructure to do this. That's the hope. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to check back in in a year and see how the first uh, year of this revitalization accelerator panned out. But uh, I'm really, really excited by the range of applications we got. We had like a certain target of applications that we wanted. Uh, we got twice that uh, from every continental region and a, and a healthy mix of, you know, languages that are in need of development and some kind of work and also like critically endangered languages that urgently need a revitalization initiative. There's, there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. But you said that being among the last speakers of your language is a tremendously psychologically damaging thing. And I would add that when language extinction or language dormancy is forced on a community, that creates lasting intergenerational trauma too, because it kind of severs the generational bridge between the last generation that spoke the language and the next generation who only has access to bits and pieces of who they are and where they came from. And so it's been demonstrated that language revitalization, when successful, also can improve mental health and overall like strength of community. So it's, it's really a, um, a profound social good too. So like, even if you don't care about language per se, if you care about 
education and poverty alleviation and things like that, language revitalization is is necessary. Right, um, right. I was even reading yeah. a paper that was saying in areas where there has been successful language revitalization, there's been a decrease in crime rates. So hmm. yeah, like as you say, even if you're a native English speaker, caring about language diversity has a direct impact on you in your community. There's actually uh, uh, some economic arguments as well that language diversity or robust language diversity actually um, is good for GDP and like job creation. So Switzerland attributes about 11% of its GDP to robust multilingual policies that are not perfect. And we could criticize Switzerland too, but like as nation states go, they're they're a lot better than most when it comes to language policy. On the flip side, Great Britain loses about like 3% of its GDP a year uh, owed to a relatively monolingual workforce. Really? Um, That's, yeah. yeah, I've never actually thought about that. I won't lie. Because <laughs> yeah. I guess if you thought about workforce and languages, you would assume that everyone speaking the same language would mean a more cohesive workforce. But that's so fascinating to hear that actually if people are speaking different languages and I guess therefore thinking in different ways and bringing new ideas to the workforce, then actually you can increase your economic status. Absolutely. In a global economy, having a a workforce that only knows one language and is not like primed to learn new languages is not going to succeed in the same way that a multilingual workforce can. Being a monolingual workforce might make you more cohesive, but it also cuts you off from the rest of the world. So there are a lot of arguments for why this is a social good and a very, very important thing. So the only other thing that I would add is that language revitalization is possible after a, a language has become dormant. Like when we, when in conversations about linguistic diversity and language revitalization, you often hear about the last speakers of a language. But as long as the cultural identity is still there, as long as the people still exist in some form, they can revitalize their language as long as the language was preserved before the last native speakers died. So there are plenty of examples of this, like Hebrew went dormant as a natively spoken language in the second century BC only to be revitalized in the 1800s and is now a mother tongue of 5 million Jewish people. Here in the U.S., there's one language that I think about a lot. It's called Tunica. It's an indigenous language from Louisiana, and the Tunica Biloxi tribe of Louisiana runs a very successful revitalization project thanks to the vision of a woman from the tribe named Donna Pierre Reed, who started revitalizing the language in the 80s. Uh, Today, there are 32 new fluent speakers, at least, probably more at this point. And uh, as of the last census that I looked at, 10% of the tribe is enrolled in linguistic immersion, but the last native speaker died in 1948. That's incredible. So, yeah. So as long as the community is there and there are resources to learn the language, it's actually not too late mm-hmm. if a language is dormant. Right. It's only too late if the whole like cultural identity is gone. Like I don't think anyone could really successfully revive like Visigothic or something. Right. Sure. <laughs> you know? Sure. Um, yeah. But I think of something as you're saying, and you're just so interesting to talk to. Like it just goes out of my brain. I just think you. of the next thing. But yeah, going back to Hebrew re- revitalization. I'm guessing there was a need to suddenly create a whole load of new words and a vast range of vocabulary and even maybe grammar, modernizing a dormant language. There's definitely a huge component of that. And it's also true in a language that isn't dormant, right? So I think back in the 90s or the early 2000s, the three sovereign tribal governments of the Cherokee people met to debate what Cherokee language vocabulary for the digital age would be, right? Like they had to decide what what are we going to call a computer? Are we just going to like 
Cherokeeize the the word computer, or are we going to create a new Cherokee word that means computer? And they ended up doing that. And I, I don't remember what it is in Cherokee, but I think it translates literally to electronic brain. That's, uh, That's so cool. Yeah. And they've got to do that with Afro Seminole Creole, Wendy's project uh, mm-hmm. that I talked about a, a few minutes ago, because, you know, there's only one 1,000 word dictionary and the full range of daily speech in most languages is like three or 5,000 words. <laughs> And that's just daily speech, not esoteric concepts and stuff like that, right? Right. So they're going to have to do a lot of linguistic reconstruction as they go deeper into the revitalization. And they've been thinking a lot about that and planning for that. And so they're looking, obviously, to Gullah, which is the closest extant language to Afro-Seminole Creole, but also at some English language Creoles influenced by Spanish that are spoken in the Caribbean. Uh, We introduced Wendy to a linguist named Shalom Gooden, who... uh, works on Creole languages and, and specifically English language Creoles that are influenced by Spanish. So, so this is a very common thing. And that was obviously the case with, with Hebrew when they revitalized it. There were some grammar shifts as well. The word order in ancient Hebrew is different than the word order in modern Hebrew. Could a modern Hebrew speaker understand an ancient Hebrew text if they read it? If you're fluent, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I think me, as I'm learning modern Hebrew now, if I were to try and read an ancient Hebrew text, I would have a very hard time, but I would have a hard time with modern Hebrew text sure. as well. Modern Hebrew was created based on ancient Hebrew, right? Like that's the text that they were working from. Even though Hebrew went extinct as a native language in the second century, it remained well alive as the liturgical and literary language for kind of all of history. And so Jewish people never stopped reading and writing Hebrew. And so there's an interesting kind of continuity there. And just going even further back into, I guess, like prehistory, do we know what the first human species to actually develop um, a full-blown spoken language was? No. uh, And there's not a lot of consensus about even what language is right? There have been some parameters proposed, right? Like a language needs to be semiotic to be able to talk about things that are not right in front of you. It needs to adapt and change from place to place and group to group. Like it needs to have a certain kind of like social context. Uh, These are parameters that have been proposed to distinguish between language and just kind of like utterance, right? What's interesting is some of the more complex parameters have been found in other species. There is a nascent biological field of investigating the communication systems of other species. And they haven't found them in all species. Like a cat's meow is just a meow. There's not a lot going on there. But among certain species of birds, uh, certain primates, certain uh, species of insects and things like that, they have found some of these things like semiotic phenomena, different systems from one group to the other that individuals from one group can learn. They obviously haven't found human language in other species, but that's because human language is human. (laughs) I guess even Uh, like the honeybee waggle dance, they're effectively communicating an idea that's not right there in physical form in front of them, an abstract thing. Exactly. And it changes from hive to hive. It what Really? And so is there like different dialects between the hives? Yes. At least that's been found. Like they did one study where they they took like bees like from different hives and put them together to see if they could understand each other and they couldn't always and sometimes they would learn each other's waggle dances and then other times they would one group would kill everyone from the other group reminds you of humans actually yeah for sure (laughs) i guess that's like another another reason why like the extensive bee farming and like transporting bees across america is terrible because bees don't always speak each other's language i guess (laughs) yeah they're capable of uh 
of learning though apparently which is very interesting yeah um so so in the sense that we know very little about languages and communication as a biological phenomenon we're just starting to scratch the surface of how complex communication manifests in other species and we don't even have a consensus around what human language is or what language is if maybe it's a biological phenomenon that exists in other species besides us what is it and what distinguishes it from simple communication so no we definitely don't know about like neanderthals or homo erectus or some of these other human species that existed although i would guess that they probably had complex communication too i mean neanderthals had music I was reading, actually, I think it was in Portugal or Spain. Basically, they found evidence um, and like, remains of bone flutes. And the location of the shards of these flutes were actually in the acoustically optimal point within the cave. So somehow these early human beings had found out where was the best point to play music and whether that's hmm. like an adaptive phenomenon to communicate stuff to other humans far away or to ward off animals. It's, yeah, it's really fascinating. Sure. And, you know, I mean, aesthetics is definitely something that exists in other species too, right? Like when you have birds that have mating rituals around like who builds the coolest nest or the prettiest nest, the nests that get built have ornament and things that are not purely functional. And so for whatever reason, some nests are prettier to some birds than others. And that's also true for a species of pufferfish of all creatures. It's very interesting. What I do wish is that there would be more interest among humanity scholars in these emergent biological fields. Whenever I bring this up to linguists or sociologists or anthropologists, they usually roll their eyes at me and are really stuck in this assumption that some of these phenomena are uniquely human. They haven't arrived at that assumption based on any data, just on the long human tradition of assuming that we're cosmically unique. I think that linguists and anthropologists and sociologists would have a lot to offer these kinds of biological studies into communication and aesthetics and other phenomenon. And I feel that further research and further study on other species communication and if you want to call it language, language would then throw up more questions that we'd previously not thought about, about our own linguistics. So I think it could be a really fascinating mutual exchange of research. The eminent behavioral ecologist Tim Clattenbrock said that there needs to be more communication between the social sciences and like the biological sciences. And that's just in the field of behavioral ecology. Yes. And right then, Daniel realized he was overrun for time and had to dash off for a meeting. To find out more about Wikitungs, I'll put the links in the show notes. I'll also talk more about the 7,000 Voices project soon. My hope is to inspire more people to take an interest in language diversity, whether it's learning a second language or sparking more awareness of the need to conserve all languages. I feel that when most people think of ecology, they think of a dry, boring subject, which is only interesting to a few niche scientific minds. I want to change that. Ecology is fundamentally defined by interactions. The term has now come to include the interconnections and behaviours of humans, brain cells, dinosaurs, languages, even political ideas. Through fascinating conversations with amazing people, I want to show that ecology is more than just the study of food webs and carbon cycles. It is key to understanding how we are all interconnected, both with each other and nature. Every one of us has the power and connections to make a huge difference. Join me next time as I talk with Professor Sarah Bennell, founder of the Jewish Language Project, about the impact conserving historical and linguistic heritage can have.